Last week, we were in Acts chapter 13, and we wrapped up that chapter together. We saw Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. They entered into being sent out of Antioch, right? That great sending church out of which would go the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And they made their way inland last week to the city of Antioch in Pisidia. That's different than the Antioch out of which they were sent, which was a good bit further to the east. And Paul preached last week a clear gospel message. It should be noted that that message, while it was heard by all in the city as they gathered together, and, and it says the whole city believed, right? It originated, the preaching of the word originated in the Jewish synagogue. Now that will become an important point for us, of a point of comparison when it comes to how Paul preaches in this week's Message. We know that in Lystra, there appears not to have been a, a synagogue. The Apostle Paul did not go there first. So we find Paul's preaching in a far more pagan environment this morning with little knowledge of God. So as we come to chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, they've made their way east of Antioch and Pisidia to Iconium and then to Lystra and then down to Derbe. In the beginning of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. We're going to just have that read over us. Take a peek at it. I invite you to study it more during the course of the week. But for now, let us just make note of this. It says that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. In verse 1, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So even as Jews and Gentiles are believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a division that's rising up. Now what's interesting is Paul and Barnabas' response is instructive. Instead of running away from some of the factions that were rising up and some of the persecution that was coming down, they remained and they spoke boldly. It says that they bore witness to the word of grace. That's the business of people who are being sent out as witnesses. That's the title of our entire sermon series, Witnesses. Our job is to bear witness to the word of his grace. And so now in verses 8 through 18, this morning we spend our time in Lystra. Lystra is an interesting place. It's maybe one of the first ones that we've come to that are like Lystra. Lystra is a smaller town in a rural Region. It's well south of the larger town of Iconium, but it's still inland in the Mediterranean Sea. And this morning, what we have is we have a miracle and a message. A miracle, a message, a bit of blasphemy and correction by the truth. So let's begin by looking at the miracle and the message. Verse 8, just call your attention there. Let's remember what it says. In verse 8, we have a man who is crippled, couldn't use his feet from birth. He never walked. This isn't the Apostle Paul walking into town. Somebody has a sprained ankle, and now they're able to hop around for a few moments. This is something that everybody knew in the town, what had happened, because they'd seen this man before. He'd been around Lystra. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. Look at verse 9. This is so important for us to see. It says, 
He listened to Paul speaking. Don't forget that as we move forward in the passage. It says that Paul looked at him intently. He saw that he had faith to be made well. And with a loud voice, he said, stand up right on your feet. Now, some of you may be saying, man, I I didn't read that this week, but it sure sounds familiar. Well, in our study of Acts, it should sound familiar. It sounds very familiar uh, to Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, we have this account, that Peter, another of the apostles, and, and John, yet another apostle, they went up to the temple. And there in Acts chapter 3, there was a lame man from birth at the gate. And it says, Peter directed his gaze at him. And Peter said, and I quote, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man leapt up and began to walk and praise God in the temple. In the sight of everyone, they saw the power of God to transform this man. What's clear to me as I look at those comparison between Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 14 is this. There's, there's one author of both the books of Luke and Acts, and it is, the, it is Luke who wrote these. And it seems to me that Luke is establishing the apostle Paul as a true apostle with the other apostles. Is putting him in occupying really the same office as a witness to the gospel, directly commanded and instructed and a witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And here in our passage, we see him work this miracle that's so similar to the miracle of that Peter worked in Acts chapter 3, just as he preached a sermon that was so similar to Peter's sermon last week. Now, what we have in this passage, it begins with a miracle. We've seen this a number of times in the book of Acts with the gospel being preached in a new region. News of the invisible reality of forgiveness is being preached. Good news, gospel news of the inner invisible reality of this transformation from death to life. And that's going out into the world. And the Spirit is giving visible evidence of his power and mercy in order to establish the invisible truth that the gospel is able to save and transform the inner man. Listen, listen carefully. The Holy Spirit, who worked this powerful miracle to put on display his power from not only to transform this man from a a cripple to one who can walk and leap with joy to a man who has been forgiven of sin and redeemed, reconciled to his God. That same Holy Spirit also inspired Luke to record this authoritative account in Acts for us so that you and I can see the miraculous acts of the apostles, that we might hear from these witnesses and have the same confidence in the gospel as if we were there in Lystra or in Jerusalem in the temple on that day, seeing this miracle bearing witness to the power of God, listen, to save. Is the message of Luke, that is the message of the Holy Spirit. That it all hinges on the gospel of Jesus Christ to save his work in the inner man. 
Now, again, verse 9, note it. I encourage you to even underline it because it's a whole sentence, and yet you'll miss it if you're not careful. It says, he listened to Paul speaking. The man listened. He did something that no one else in the story seems to have done. There's little witness in the whole of the story that anybody actually listened to Paul speaking. He was actually listening to the gospel message of Paul as he proclaimed the gospel. So when Paul looks at him, he can see the reality of his faith written on his face. This man has humbled himself under the preaching of the word. Now compare that to the reaction of the rest of the people in the town. All that they can see is miracle. All they can see is a man who used to not walk and now he can walk. But they did not hear the message of the gospel. In this passage, you have two works of the Holy Spirit. You have a miracle and you have a message. And we see that miracle and message at both at work in the life of this man who is leaping for joy and worshiping the Lord. What we have to do is we have to understand the power of God in both of these together for faith and belief and transformation by the gospel. There are two errors that we can make. The first error is this, that we would hear the message and miss the miracle. We would hear the message and miss the miracle. That is to treat the gospel like a powerless philosophy. It's to treat the gospel like a self-help book. Like here's the message, now go and do it. Go and do the gospel. You've heard it, come on now. Inevitably, the gospel becomes a mere teaching, a, a better way to live, a way to become righteous. But what's meant by that, if you examine it closely, it's to become self-righteous because you're the one who has to do it. It's just a philosophy. It's just a teaching, just a better way to be. The actual power to change comes from self-power, from will power. And if there is any change, you can glory in your ability to listen well and work well. But then you have the error that shows up in our passage, and we're going to spend just a little bit more time on it. The error that we see in our passage is to see the miracle, but miss the message. Both of these are prevalent, I believe, in our day. To see the miracle, but miss the message, is to teach the gospel like mere pragmatism. What, what can I get out of God? yet continue to live my own way and serve my own ends. What can God do for me? And then we can write songs about all the things that God has done for me, right? To orient That God has oriented the whole of his universe around me. The gospel becomes a means to our own ends. These town folks, they, they heard that someone had a great power to work for them. Then they seek out the power for themselves as well. They, they see that, that God has worked for this guy. Now let's have God work for me. But they did not hear the message that Paul had preached about God, his glory, his gospel, the power of his work for salvation and the call to faith, to a humbled repentance and belief. 
These people in this town of Lystra, they have utterly no regard for the gospel message, unlike the man who listened to Paul speaking. I want to tell you how I think this is working itself out in our present day. Even perhaps at times in our midst. This passage reminds me of those who with what the Bible calls itching ears seek and call for a message that's more practical. You give me a message that is more practical, more life-changing for me. They want something that's more immediately practical than the message about Jesus and forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I, I know that. They want preachers that will cherry-pick promises of God and then tell them how they only need to do these three things in order to experience the power of God in their lives. You see, it's grabbing the promise of God's power that we then do a few religious activities to leverage God's power for our benefit. But there's little regard for the work of Jesus. There's little attention or call to genuine faith in his life, his death, his resurrection. There's no teaching of how faith in Jesus changes not only our behaviors, but also our desires. How the gospel will radically reorient your worship, the pursuit of the soul by the transformative work of the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. Most importantly, there's no need to truly know God in a gospel that pays attention to the miracle, but not to the message. Just as we see in our passage this morning, these people don't know who God is. They don't have any need for sound doctrine. They don't want to sit like the crippled man and humble themselves under sound teaching. They just want to hear how this great power can work for them too. They want themselves some of that great power. The bottom line is this. The message of the gospel is the miracle of God. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great miracle. It is the good news. For by this gospel message, by the preaching of sound doctrine, faith in the word as it's rightly taught, we can come to know a true and real knowledge of God, our maker, and how he reconciled us to himself. Friends, that is greater than any other miracle I can imagine. That a rebel like me could actually know my God and have fellowship with him. Friends, that is the miracle. Any pragmatic message about God's power in your life that does not make much of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that that doesn't have as the center of its message the good news of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God is a pure, self-centered pragmatism. And then it has more in common with the idolatrous paganism that we see in our passage than it does the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear that. Hear that. Any other message than the message about forgiveness of sin, the transformation from rebel to worshipers, is idolatrous and is the same thing as paganism. 
Now let's take a moment to consider the blasphemy of the people in this town of Lystra. Let's see how it plays out for them. In verse 11, look at it with me. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, you see it? What did the crippled man see? He saw a man preaching. And he laid there, and he listened, and he believed. But the crowd, they saw what Paul had done, and they lifted up their voices, and they began to speak in Lyconian. And they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Ah, Barnabas, Paul, gods. Barnabas is Zeus. He was probably the older of the two. Paul, he's Hermes. He's the messenger of the great god Zeus. Now, what you have to understand about this culture is that part of the mythology in the region, and this is recorded for us by Ovid in his Metamorphosis, is that Zeus and Hermes had visited the region. But when they visited the region, they found no hospitality in the towns that they came to except for one humble home of an elderly couple. And so Zeus and Hermes, they elevate this elderly couple and they turn their humble home into a great temple and they destroy the homes of all those who refused them hospitality. So this religious myth had grown up in their midst and it likely explains some of the response of the townsfolk to Zeus and Hermes showing up in town. To Paul and Barnabas, you can see how... Their understanding of what is real and true in their culture of their town shaped the way that they saw the gospel being preached. And so it's important, as we'll see in just a moment, that Paul and Barnabas would not just openly preach, but that they would do so in such a way that directly confronts the culture of the town we see in the passage that there is a sacrifice that's about to be made. This is no small thing. There's a great commotion. And the great commotion is taking place in the Lyconian language. The priest comes out into the streets. He begins to make preparations to sacrifice oxen. He brings out garland. He's about to dress things up and make a great big party for the day that Zeus and Hermes came to town. Paul and Barnabas are about to become the center of a pagan sacrifice. Now, all of this commotion is taking place in the Lyconian language. This might explain for us why it isn't until Paul and Barnabas see the oxen being drugged out into the streets and the priest beginning to make this preparation that they they break into the crowd at that point and they're going to put an end to all of this blasphemy. And there's something that I want us to see here. It's a focal point of the passage. I want us to see zeal for glory. There is zeal for glory in this passage, in Paul and Barnabas' reaction. Look at it with me. Verse 13, it describes how the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed into the street, crying out. 
Again, with a loud voice, they tore their garments. To tear your garments is a public sign of grief. I, I was curious about that, and I went and looked at the passages where people are tearing their garments in the scriptures in this cultural sign of a, of, of a public proclamation. I was curious what it is that it's a public proclamation of. And over and over again, what we find is, is King David hears of the death of the king and his beloved friend Jonathan, and he tears his garments in grief. Job, he hears of the tragic and violent death of his children, and he tears his clothes. Mordecai, he hears of the impending murder of all of his kinsmen, and what does he do? He tears his clothes. Friends, it's a sign of grief. Paul and Barnabas doing here. They are heartbroken. There is grief that in some way they would wind up at the center of idolatrous pagan worship and sacrifice. Grief. We could learn a lot from Paul and Barnabas here. It's as though they're saying, God, this should not B, there's something that's terribly wrong. My heart is broken and I can't bear what I see and what I hear. Their hearts are broken for the glory of God, for they have a zeal for glory, but it's not a zeal for their glory. It's a zeal for the glory of God. It's what sent them on the journey, a zeal to make known the glory of God in his gospel. It's a zeal that sends them into the streets to say, no, 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 we are just men. It says that they rushed into the crowd, right? They put their persons between the people and their idolatry. That's good shepherding work. Rend their garments and to rush in between the people and their idolatry. They want no part in this maligning of God's glory. They, they want the connection to be clear between the message of the gospel and the power of God to save. And they don't want to be seen standing there as mediators, but rather simply messengers. In order for that connection to be clear, they, they want the people to know that they are, are just witnesses, mere men, faulty and failing witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not gods, they're witnesses of the gospel. So I'd ask us just a, a couple questions. How, how are we centered? What, what is our center? What is our zeal? What glory do we Seek. Are we jealous for the glory of God alone? It's, it's for that reason that Cross Point Coast does most of the things the way we do it here. I find it awkward at, at times that, that we try to go up about things because it's not always the normal way of going about things. It's not because we want to be awkward. It's not because we just want to do things differently. It's because we're trying to go about things in such a way that says we aren't great. We're not cool. We're not mighty. There's nothing commendable about us. There's nothing righteous about us. The fact is, 
We live in a culture of dreadful, incessant, repetitious, self-centered pride. A culture of celebrity and pragmatism, of glory mongering. This is where we live. This is where many of us have grown up. This is This isn't something that's just around us. It's something that's in us. And sadly, we see the church so easily participate in the culture, even when we don't even know it. Paul and Barnabas, they don't want to come anywhere close to occupying a place that belongs to God alone. Sometimes that requires a rending of the garments, a real grief and a running into the streets to declare our jealousy for God and his glory. That means that what we do must be done in such a way that it points to the Lord as the only means and power of any fruitfulness. I long for fruitfulness. I long for miraculous growth, 30, 60, 100 fold in our hearts and in our community. But may it be so that it's obvious and evident that the power is in the seed of the word, not in the, the farmer just because he threw seed all over the ground. The difficult thing in a culture that's prone to worship all things except God is somehow to make that known. We are in a culture that is worshiping. We are all Worshippers, And I would argue that in the United States, we're really good at worship. We spend a great deal of our time and our talent and attention worshiping many things except God. And so we have to exercise a great discernment and a humility as witnesses and messengers. Our ways and our strategies and our efforts must not take its cues from the business models of advertising that surround the culture. Our message will begin to be heard in a culture in the same way that we hear our, our, our own messages. It will sound like the message of the church is, is about ourselves, how good we are and how good we can be, rather than the glory of God and his work of redeeming sinners. I don't want the word to get out that Cross Point Coast is a good church. I don't want the word to get out that we have good music or good preaching. The fact is what we have is a good song to sing. And we have a glorious message. That's the word that we want to to leak out our doors and into our households to transform our lives and make its way as, as a counter to the idolatry that is in us and in our community. What that took for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas is it took a confronting of the culture. We see that they confront the culture with a great deal of zeal. The church has to confront the culture. It can't just blend into the ways and means that it's surrounded by. Do you think that Barnabas and Saul blended in with the culture as they tore their clothes and ran out into the crowd? Do you think that that looked like a culturally appropriate response on that day as the people are about to celebrate a great feast? It's time that we take a look, an honest look at the culture 
And we look around us and we admit for all our talk of being a Christian nation or with a blessed Christian heritage, and there is so much blessing there, we simply cannot argue that functionally we are a culture that honors God as God. We must admit that our default position as a culture, as a society, as a people, our default position is to functionally walk with the normative behavior to worship ourselves and the things around us to accumulate and to celebrate our accomplishments. That is our default position. Functionally, we have far more in common with the pagans of like uh, of Lystra than we do with the believers in Antioch. There's an accusation in that for us here. And there's a concern that we should have, a, a zeal that should rise up in us and say, oh God, that's a cause for grief. That's a cause for repentance. It's not a cause for us to tell the world how great we are. And how well we've done it, whatever it is. There's a grief that should be in us that we've made much in our, of ourselves. Let's take note of the nature of Paul's correction. How he goes about the correction on this day in Lystra. This is the first time that the gospel message is being preached among a deeply pagan people cut off from a knowledge of God. And notice that they begin in a different place than they did when they began with the gospel message in the synagogue. Paul does not begin to talk about how they, they did things back home in Tarsus. In his confrontation of the culture, he doesn't say, oh, you guys have got it so wrong back home. And in the good old days, this is how we went about worship. And here in this culture, you should adopt my culture's worship and the way that we go about things there. Instead, he confronts the culture with the truth. Now, he does so by beginning at the beginning, back with creation, something that the people of Lystra needed to hear, that perhaps the Jews in the synagogues already knew. So he goes back to that. But he does so by confronting the culture with the truth of the scriptures. You see, the culture of his homeland in Judea had been deeply shaped by the truth of God, but he doesn't bring Judean culture to bear upon the people of Lystra. What does he bring? He brings the truth of God to bear upon his people and their people. In the same way, we can't confront cultural idolatry in our day by appealing to a culture of our past, the good old days of Bible Belt Christianity. If we could just be like we were back then when everybody was a Christian, it doesn't even make any sense. It's not a culture that we can confront another culture with. We don't need good old days. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be today confrontational with the truth that this culture would be shaped and molded and transformed and become another expression among the many cultures on this planet that are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ would become a peculiar and beautifully transformed culture by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't simply need to act more like we used to be. 
We don't need more moralism, moralisms from a culture past. We don't we need our minds conformed to the truth of God. We need our hearts transformed by the message of God. And that's why the message always has to be the central thing. What they do is they offer a few doctrinal correctives. I wish we had time to just sit and be corrected ourselves in these doctrines. For now, let me just mention verse 15. In verse 15, he says, men, why are you doing these things? The culture is what it is, and it acts the way it acts because it believes some things. That's why when the Apostle Paul asks the question, men, why do you, are you doing these things? He then continues by the open statement of the truth. That the open statement of the truth would stand in opposition to the cultural beliefs that were motivating the people to do these things. We also are men, he says, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made all that there is. His first proclamation is men aren't gods. God alone is God. He confronts the culture of paganism with the open statement of biblical truth, that there is this idea that, that God is a sort of superhuman. Humans love, right? But God just loves us so much better. Humans have certain abilities, but God just has more powerful abilities. Humans have wills. God is just able to get more things done with his will. That's blasphemy. That causes Paul and Barnabas to run into the streets, tearing their clothes and waving their hands. No, this, this cannot be. This is a tragedy. God is God. He's not like us, period. You say, but the scriptures also tell us that we're made in his image. And I say, yeah, you said it. His image not ours. Humans love yeah. as finite, creaturely reflection of the divine and infinite love of God. Humans, we have certain abilities insofar as God has granted them to us as a gift of his all-powerful grace. Humans have wills, it's true. And those wills are subject to the eternal, all-wise, sovereign design of the Lord in creation and providence. Compare all of this to the Greek and Roman gods. They, they act more like soap opera dramas than anything that's transcendent. Paul and Barnabas, they're bringing a corrective to the culture. We don't have gods that are simply superhumans. We have the God, and he is other than us. We are creatures, and he's the creator. This mythology of gods and goddesses that strut about, about like Hollywood celebrities with too much time on their hands are the cultural narrative of the region. But Paul and Barnabas are willing to confront the cultural narrative with the reality of the one true God, the open statement of the truth. Brothers and sisters, today, to confront falsehoods with the truth is, in this way, 
is not tolerated in our culture. It's offensive. It, it is offensive. It declares that something that we have believed is, is wrong. And I hope that every single person in this room, including myself, are confronted with the, the reality that our disposition to prideful self-centeredness and arrogance and self-exaltation and self-righteousness is an affront to reality. We're branded as intolerant. But we must do business with this account that is in our midst and with many others that are recorded for us in Acts before we reject our responsibility to be truth tellers in a culture that's believed a lie. I think one of the most important things that we can do as a church isn't just to declare the truth in confrontation to the lies of the world, but to declare the truth. Keep doing that and then hear it. Be confronted by it. Become a people who are repentant of our waywardness and our participation with our culture. There's something that the world has not yet seen, that our culture has not yet seen. And that is a a church that has been confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that our first witness in our communities is the witness of repentance. We are sorry that we've said the truth when we get together, and sometimes we sing it too, but we've lived a lie in your midst, proclaiming a false gospel with the rest of our lives. Perhaps we should begin there. As witnesses in verse 15, and that's what Paul and Barnabas call themselves in verse 17, it says, we bring you good news. You hear that? They're witnesses, messengers of good news. Their business in the region was not to work great miracles, to gather a lot of tension, to launch a great church planting movement based on their celebrity appeal that they garnered on that day. They didn't say, well, we didn't mean to do that, but now that you're listening, it's not how they work. Very practically, and I hope with humility, I look at the way that churches even use social media and other means of getting themselves out there to herald how great a group of people they are. And I can't help but compare that approach to the approach of Paul and Barnabas. They don't preach themselves. They don't post about their own glory. They don't try to make themselves look good to win some. They don't talk about how great a church community they had back in Antioch. And if you'll just join us, then you can have a great community like we had back there. And we can see a great movement launched in this region of Pisidia and Lystra and Derb. Now, these are gospel people. They're messengers. They don't preach themselves. They bring the good news of God. And then they try and strive to get out of the way. They remember Jesus' commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we should remember it as well. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. God has given power for one reason only, and that's that we would be witnesses. 
Just like last week, we saw Paul reminding the people how John the Baptist was so careful to avoid any misunderstanding to show who was the real show in town. John the Baptist is not the Messiah, John the Baptist declares. It becomes a part of the statement of what the gospel is. Part of the statement of what the gospel is, is that we are not the gospel. We are not little messiahs. The one who is to come, we're not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's part of the statement of the gospel. It has to be part of a consideration. We must decrease and he must increase. The apostles are zealous for this truth. I was sharing with the, the team that leads so much for us about that this morning that it strikes me that we don't ever really see really any of the apostles get quite so worked up in any of their preaching as Paul and Barnabas get worked up and zealous to declare that they are not gods. Now that'll motivate them to get shouting in the streets. We are not gods, is their zealous message on that day. Man, that's got to be somehow work into our message as well. And you should turn from these vain things, they say. Now, I want to press that point again. The truth of the gospel, the truth of reality is that there is a God and we have a maker. Absolutely, we must confront every culture, including our own, with that reality. And we, we have to find that, that we live in the things that we think that are not in line with that reality and turn from those vain things. As we find ourselves in this culture, can we coexist? Can we get along? Can we blend in? Can we act with kindness and generosity and grace toward those who disagree? For the most part, yes, we can. In fact, I would quickly argue that it's biblical Christianity that gifted the world with the idea that morality, the ethic of patience with the idea that we don't need to force or coerce conversion But we must also, right in the middle of that conviction, remain faithful witnesses to the reality that there's one Lord and God. We have to hold out the call to turn from falsehood and humble ourselves before the truth. It's a call to humbled faith, not a call to forced fealty. The passage ends with Paul pointing the people to the one true God, to the the living God who made all things, the things on land and earth and all things, he says who has borne witness to himself in the ages past, the passage says, and and yet has become fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is our hope, and it is our testimony. And there's a challenge in this passage for us this morning. I want to just offer three things. I hope that you would go back to the passage and be challenged by the word itself during the course of this week. For us this morning, let me just share three things quickly. We must see the idolatry of the culture we find ourselves in. We must admit that this is our culture. This is where many of us are from and where we were raised. We have to ask ourselves, have we adopted and brought into the church any of the idolatry that we were raised in? And the answer to that question, just to give you a little heads up, maybe skip a step, yes. The answer to that question is yes. 
So how have we modeled even the ministry of the gospel after self-centered, individualistic practices of pride and self-promotion? That one's going to be harder to answer, in part because it's probably going to require some repentance. Secondly, we must be zealous for the glory of God alone. The gospel that we herald is great. The spirit that works in us works with great power. And we've seen the Lord work great things in our midst. One of the greatest things that I've seen among us is I do see, I do see, and I celebrate the power of God to make a people that love one another. That's miraculous to me, that you you guys actually love one another. It's beautiful to see. But friends, it's the power of God in our midst. It is not ourselves. We have to bear the testimony that we are just men and women, that there is nothing inherently beautiful about us except what God has worked among us. That's why our social media posts can't say, we're a loving church. Is that our testimony? Is that our message? If it is and somebody believes it and comes, they're going to discover very quickly, and they're hypocrites. We are a God who has worked powerfully in our midst. And we celebrate when we are a loving church because we're like, oh my God, you're at work among us. What power there is in your grace. Finally, in this culture of self-centered pride and self-promotion, we must be witnesses to the truth of Christ. We must be careful as we're witnesses in our culture. We have to seek and know the truth of God. We have to seek and know him in order to proclaim him. We, we must discern in the church what is truth and what's merely cultural preference. And that's a hard one, which means we probably need to listen to other cultural preferences and pay attention to them and notice things about ourselves and admit them. Yeah, I prefer them. We're going to keep doing them, but they're not the gospel. So that we might witness to the gospel rather than ourselves. And then we must be willing to preach this truth even in a culture that's increasingly intolerant of truth claims. If we continue through the end of the chapter, we would see that Paul is mobbed and stoned nearly to death. And still, the passage says he continued to preach the gospel. It says that he continued to strengthen the souls of the disciples with the truth of God and encouraged them to continue in the faith. Heavenly Father, I pray that your, the truth of your gospel that we know, the reality of your life, your death, your resurrection, the reality that you have risen and ascended and reigned to this day as king over your church, or that we would herald your glory, that when you return, you would find no usurpers among us. But you would find a people who are faithful as your witnesses, as you have left us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, but you have given your comforter to convict us of sin. And that is great comfort that We have a spirit that would work in us to remind us of our salvation, to seal us with great encouragement so we have nothing to be fear. 
And Lord, to encourage us and comfort us when there is suffering in the open proclamation of the truth. Lord, we we go with this confidence this morning. We pray that you would work in this church and in our community and that we would see transformation and that a more beautiful Brevard County would grow up because of your gospel's power. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.